When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm glad I did things in my 20s that, uh, you know, were more reckless because at some point you, you realize you have a responsibility more behind yourself and your need for adrenaline. I mean, I'm still looking for bigger waves and I still think I've got a few more, you know, I can jump up a few more feet. Eddie Vedder remembers a younger, untamed time in the career of Pearl Jam that saw the frontman and his bandmates in their 20s thrilling crowds with raucous live shows. In April 1992, with Pearl Jam's videos garnering airplay on MTV, and the band's debut album, 10, ascending up the Billboard 200 chart, Pearl Jam played a sold-out show in front of just a few hundred people in Cleveland's flats. The show marked the end of an era for a band that would quickly graduate to arenas and then stadiums. I'm Troy L. Smith, reporter for Cleveland.com, and you're listening to CLE Rocks, the music podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. This is the story of one of the greatest concerts in Cleveland history from a band that no matter how big it got, remained loyal to the fans. Hello, Pearl Jam was far from an overnight success. Born in 1990 from the ashes of promising Seattle band Mother Love Bone, the members of Pearl Jam would release their debut 10 in August 1991. Bassist Jeff Ament would go on to call 10 just an excuse to tour, and tour Pearl Jam did. The 10 tour would run from September 1991 to June 1992, delivering a total of 148 shows across North America and Europe. Yet, while 10 would garner praise for its high energy, forceful guitars, and Vedder's compelling vocal performance, the album sales were moderate, with other Seattle grunge bands like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and Nirvana beginning to take off. Pearl Jam was still coming into its own, remembers Ronan Giovanni, author of Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense. They were the last of all those groups to come together. They were the last of those groups to get a record deal and, and to put out their first album. Um, and I think that, you know, you really see, like, you know, especially 92, just just really almost any one of those club shows on the 10 tour. It's just a band that's going for it, you know, like, and, and I think that they know at that point that um, they're to a certain extent, like the underdogs a little bit. And, and, you know, at that time in Seattle, you know, there was, there was kind of like a cool kids camp, like an insiders, you know, group. And, and, and I don't think Pearl Jam was part of that. You know, I think that they were considered, you know, a little bit more, you know, among the kind of suburban metal, you know, poser kids. Um, and so that's really them trying to prove themselves and, 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 and really like coming into their own, you know, as, as a band. Halfway through the North American leg of the 10 tour, Pearl Jam canceled a series of headlining dates in order to take an opening slot on the Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic Tour. Those canceled dates included a scheduled performance at Peabody's Down Under, a popular venue in Cleveland's Flats, 
Michael Norman, who was a music critic for Cleveland's Plain Dealer at the time, was scheduled to cover the concert. I mean, there were huge stars by the time this show um, happened in April of 92. The, you know, the 10 album had rocketed up the Billboard album charts, and the single Alive was in heavy rotation on radio and MTV. Um, and they should have been playing arenas and, and amphitheaters and, and maybe even stadiums in some uh, regions. And in a few months, they would be. They were they were co-headlining uh, Lollapalooza in 1992. But this show was booked in 91 before all that had happened. And, um, and, and they had to reschedule it uh, because they landed an opening slot with the Pumpkins, Smashing Pumpkins and Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, on a tour that uh, played Music Hall in Cleveland on October 26th of 91. So um, the guy who booked the show, Larry Collins, who was the booker at Peabody's at that point and now runs City Buddha in Cleveland Heights, a retail store over there, um, he thought they weren't going to come. You know, he expected them to cancel given, you know, they're rock stars. Um, but, the, but they promised to do the show and they honored the commitment. And so... Uh, um, they showed up in, uh, you know, April of 92. With its headlighting gig postponed, Pearl Jam arrived in Cleveland with the Chili Peppers and Smashing Pumpkins for a show at Music Hall on October 26, 1991. Pearl Jam went on first, playing just seven songs, including the promo single Wash and six album cuts from 10. was a short set, but one fan Matthew Fasciana remembers fondly. They were by far the best band of the night. They were awesome that night. And uh, we were even up in the nosebleed upper balcony. And on that first show, there was like, at the music hall, there was like an orchestra pit between the crowd and the stage. And Eddie launched himself over the orchestra, like the 10-foot orchestra pit to get into the crowd. It was awesome. And I'm like, I'm a fan of this band right away. During the band's tour with Red Hot Chili Peppers, word spread of Pearl Jam's stellar live show. The band's songs from 10 began to garner more and more airplay on radio stations. By the time Pearl Jam headed to Europe to resume its headlining tour in spring 1992, the crowds were expanding. Giovanni says Pearl Jam would go from being an act most people hadn't seen to a band on the cusp of greatness. Their identity is is really like just unformed at this point. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's exciting to see like, you know, a band kind of just go through this evolutionary phase, like so compressed because, you know, basically within a couple of months, um, you know, the Jeremy video will be out. They will have, you know, more or less been playing these songs for about a year. And I think like this, you know, probably this Cleveland show is, is one of the last times they were just, you know, playing music from 10, um, you know, lovingly and, and without any, um, you know, whatever ambivalence. Pearl Jam returned stateside for the remainder of its headlining tour in March 1992. The run of shows included a makeup date at Peabody's Down Under. The venue was small, with a capacity of roughly 500 people, but Peabody's was no stranger to legendary rock acts. Bands like R.E.M., Jane's Addiction, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Faith No More had all played early gigs there. Peabody's wasn't five, 600 people. It was more like packed to the gills, 300 people, right? So this is a, just a classic bar in the flats, one of the great rock clubs in Cleveland history, up there, I think, with the Agora. 
and um, other other spots like that, Lacob, the Abura, places like that. But it, it wasn't much to look at, right? It was dark and dingy, and it was literally underground. Um, it was below um, the surface of the sidewalk uh, there in the flats. Um, if you went to shows there, it was freezing in the winter. It was hot as hell in the summer. It had really bad plumbing, and it frequently smelled like fish when it rained because it was so close to the the Cuyahoga River and the sewers there. But, man, if you put a, uh, a band and a crowd together there, a band like, like Pearl Jam, uh, it just it became that special sauce, man. It was like a palace, a rock palace. However, before the Pearl Jam concert could take place, there was the issue of a basketball game. Pearl Jam arrived in Cleveland the day before the concert for a charity event with Cleveland's rock radio station, WMMS. The station was a major force in the music industry in the 1970s and 80s, yet WMMS still had the cachet to attract a band like Pearl Jam, who at that point was all over MTV, remembers the station's then-music director, Doug Kabinsky. You know, working at, at, at WMMS, you always felt like you were kind of living in the past because it had this, like, phenomenal history and hero stories and all the artists and all that kind of stuff. And then the grunge era really seemed like this is kind of like an era of not like I'm able to experience, you know, get that feeling of kind of kind of what they went through maybe in the seventies when, you know, seventies AOR rock or whatever, Al Morena rock was kind of at its peak. And it kind of felt like that. You did, you definitely felt like this is an era, you know, it didn't seem like it was going to end. And it was just like great bands. Um, and it made, it made really the, the radio station sounded so to me, fabulous back then because you're playing Nirvana, you're playing Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. I mean, all these, you know, these bands now that, you know, have this like phenomenal history, Screaming Trees, you know, all kinds of great bands. So it was an awesome time, awesome time. In the days leading up to Pearl Jam's Peabody show, Kabinsky received a call from a rep at Epic Records. I, I um, answered the phone and it was, it was Joe Carroll, who was the local epic records rep and joe called up and said hey um you know pearl jam's coming through they're coming back to to do this makeup show at peabody's and they were pretty anti-establishment so it's like they you know they don't want to do any interviews no radio no meet and greets like none of that stuff but they want to play basketball i'm like oh um okay and we had kind of like this just like this misfit misfit basketball team of like you know radio employees that we had and we would play charity games and stuff like that around so he's like do you have a gym and i'm like uh i don't know like so i was just thinking about it and i'm like all right well you know i said let me see what i can do kabinsky's dad was the principal at normandy high school in the cleveland suburb of parma the school agreed to host the game as long as it benefited charity the game was set for pearl jam and its crew to take on members of wmms's staff but in organizing the wmms team disc jockey jeff kinsback quickly realized what the station staff was in for. The members of Pearl Jam were avid basketball fans. Bassist Jeff Amet had even played collegiate ball. None of us were really very serious about basketball, let alone good at it. So I I knew from experience that um, we had to have a little help. So I called up, I actually called up two people, and um, uh, one of which was uh, Al Bubba Baker. And Al used to be, a defensive lineman for the Browns. He was really fast. He was really good. Al said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'd be happy to play. He says, I, I actually played basketball in uh, in high school. And I thought, oh, this is great because Al's a big guy and 
you know, we need some help, you know. And um, then I called one more person. It was Hanford Dixon of the Browns. And um, and Hanford goes, I've never played basketball. <laughs> I just played football. But I guess it's it's similar. And I said, I said, Hanford, it's nowhere near similar. Even with the game put together on short notice, a few hundred Pearl Jam fans showed up at Normandy High. The two teams went back and forth in a surprisingly intense game. Pearl Jam and Team WMMS were tied going into the final seconds, with WMMS getting the final possession. Everybody thought it was going to go to Al Bubba Baker, but um, Al uh, threw it to Greg, and he he tossed it in, and, and we won the game. And we were just, oh my God, we were so excited. We had beaten these guys, you know. <laughs> it was just one of those moments, you know. Hype for the show at Peabody's had been months in the making. When Pearl Jam was originally scheduled to play the gig, the band was barely a blip on the alt-rock scene. By April 2nd, 1992, Pearl Jam's videos for Alive and Evenflow were in heavy rotation on MTV, as 10 entered the top 25 on the Billboard charts, joining the ranks of bands like U2, Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Nirvana. And tickets for the show at Peabody's were just $11. Fasciana, who attended Pearl Jam's opening set at Cleveland Music Hall just six months earlier, remembers hundreds of fans lined up outside Peabody's prior to the show as the members of Pearl Jam walked through the crowd to enter the venue. And it just seemed like there was no barrier. There was no pretense between the band and the crowd. It just seemed like we're all one. It was a great feeling, and it just was... In a weird way, it was almost like seeing old friends again, even though you know they're, they're a band, they're blowing up. Um, it just felt like a real community. Los Angeles rock band 11, which featured Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons, served as the night's opening act. But the crowd was there to see Pearl Jam, who kicked off its set with Once, the opening track from 10. The 12-song set would feature the energy and antics witnessed on now iconic videos of Pearl Jam performing at huge festivals that summer. Only on this night, it was happening at a small club, which Norman says made it all the more special. Vetter was crawling on the bar's overhead pipes um, during one one uh, really crazy segment, which uh, which uh, freaked the management out a little bit um, because uh, the pipes were old and full of raw sewage, and they didn't 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 want it to. Uh, can break um they played almost all of the album 10 nine of the 11 songs um they left out oceans and a real 
long, slow jam called Release. And then they tossed in um, State of Love and Trust, which was on the singles movie soundtrack. And then they road tested the song Leash, which would eventually make it onto Versus. So, um, I mean, it was just crazy. And, and most memorably, they ended it with this this just wild version of Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World, which, um, which they then a- added to their concert repertoire for years to come. Pearl Jam would only get bigger as 1992 went on. Just days after the Peabody's concert, the band would perform on Saturday Night Live. Pearl Jam would return to Northeast Ohio for the Lollapalooza tour that July, where things reach even bigger heights, says Norman, who covered that show at Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls. The crowd from the lawn rushed to the stage. I was like pushed up against this uh, this uh, barrier that was that they had put up in the front of the pavilion at Blossom for the mosh pit was very small. Well, I was being crushed up against the stage and, and, and I looked at the security guard and I just mouthed the words, get me the out of here. And he lifts me up by my armpits, right? And he puts me over the barrier into where the mosh pit is. My brother, who was my plus one, is behind me. He's like, me too, because we were being crushed, right? And so the only safe place was in front of the speakers because even those idiots wouldn't go in front of that deafening, deafening place. And um, we just watched the whole half of the lawn from Blossom and all of the pavilion crowd into this giant mosh pit um, under the pavilion at Blossom. It was very intense. A few months later, veteran company status as rock stars was cemented. The video for the single Jeremy exploded all over MTV. Pearl Jam was now one of the biggest music acts in the world, with Vetta reluctantly becoming one of the faces of the surging alternative rock scene. Ed did not necessarily want to be a band, you know, leading a band that was going to be on the cover of Time Magazine three years after their first show. You know, I think he wanted, um, you know, to pay his dues and, uh, and, 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 and not kind of leapfrog over people both in Seattle and nationally that he respected who had been in the trenches for a while. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think some of that moment was just a little bit out of their hands. Under Vetter's direction, Pearl Jam would spend the years following 10 pulling back from the public eye. The band declined to do music videos from 1993 until 1998. Pearl Jam would continue to release albums, its most recent, Gigaton, in 2020. The band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017 and still performs live, packing arenas and stadiums around the world. The way I often think of it is like, you know, there are still bands like whatever, Radiohead and U2 and, and, and you know, and, and all these groups have, you know, the Foo Fighters and, and they have really, I think, loyal, passionate followings. But to me, like the legacy of Pearl Jam is like, you know, it really has to do with their fans, you know, like, and it has to do with the fact that, like, um, you know, no one would really compare Pearl Jam to someone like Fish or the Grateful Dead. But it is true that, like, at this point, you know, like, if if you're a fan of theirs, you're probably going to go see multiple shows. You're probably going to recognize a few people at, at a few of the concerts. And, and by now, you know, like, there's just so many Pearl Jam people who have met their friends and their spouses and partners and drinking buddies and whatever, like, uh, like at these shows that they're this weird band that just built for longevity. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of CLE Rocks. For more, visit our page on Acast, Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Troy L. Smith. Until next time. Mm-hmm.